0: This is the Engineering Career Coach Podcast, the only podcast dedicated to helping engineers succeed in work and life. The show is hosted by engineering enthusiast Anthony Fasano and Chris Knutson, both are professional engineers who found success early in their careers and now work together to help other engineers do the same. Now it's showtime. This is the Engineering Career Coach Podcast, the show for engineers who want to succeed in both work and life. I'm Chris Knutson, your host for today's episode, and I trust that this finds you doing exceptional wherever you are in whatever engineering project you're working on today. Now, in this episode, I'm talking with Steve Armstrong, who's a leadership coach and no stranger to leading during emergency or crisis situations. We're going to be talking about the special attributes of leadership that have to be called on when facing a crisis situation, and we're going to be doing so based on his experiences with the Fort McMurray wildfires that devastated that town of the same name. And he's no stranger to crisis or leadership, and he's going to be sharing his insight and wisdom with us. And if you recognize the name, it's because Steve was with us on episode 101, so this makes him our first repeat guest. This is good stuff. And before we get into the main segment of the show, I want to take a moment to recognize our sponsor for today's episode, PPI.
1: Now,
0: if you're thinking about taking the F.E., P.E., or S.E. exam, I recommend that you check out PPI, the Leader in Engineering Exam Prep. Now they're offering a 20% discount to listeners of this podcast. Just use promo code COACH at ppi2pass.com. Again, that's ppi2pass.com. the number two, pass.com. And use promo code COACH for a 20% discount.
1: All
0: right, now I want to give you a quote related to today's topic to bring us into the show. And this one comes from Arnold Glasgow, who tells us that one of the true tests of leadership is the ability to recognize a problem before it becomes an emergency. And with that, Let's move into the main segment, Delivering Effective Leadership During a Crisis Situation with the one, the only, Steve Armstrong. Now it's time for the main segment of our show, and for today's main segment, I'm joined by Steve Armstrong. Steve is a Calgary-based speaker, educator, consultant, and leadership expert who works with technically and intellectually brilliant leaders. We're never taught how to deal with people who find themselves frustrated by not hitting their goals because of people issues. He's an expert at developing followers into leaders and building dedicated, loyal, and remarkable teams through lessons learned from 35 years as a leader, soldier, and humanitarian. Steve's honed his insights and leadership skills and his unique ability to inspire and teach others to lead, and he's one of only a handful of people in Canada Who has planned and managed the relief and recovery responses and maintained complex business continuity functions after numerous natural and man-made disasters, and if ever there was a crucible for forging leadership, it's going to be a crisis. Steve holds a master's degree in public policy and management and is the author of You Can't Lead from Behind, What I Learned in Combat About Leadership, People, and Profit. He's also no stranger to the Engineering Career Coach podcast. Steve joined us in episode 101 and now has the distinction... Of being our first repeat guest, Steve, I know that's probably making you feel pretty awesome <laughs> welcome to the show
1: well, thanks, Chris. I'll have to talk to my wife after this and have my ego deflated so that's okay
0: <laughs> <laughs> now this is exciting to get you back on the show. We had a great great conversation back on one o one, and this is going to be a good one here on uh, on this next episode. And so everyone who's listening, you can remember the show notes, if you will, that uh, you're going to find those show notes out on the uh, engineeringcareercoach.com website. There you're going to find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to all of the resources, the websites, the books, and pretty much everything else that Steve and I are going to mention during the interview today. Again, you're going to find all those details at engineeringcareercoach.com. And Steve, today we're going to be digging into leadership but not only just leadership, which we've talked about, and quite frankly, we talked about that in, in episode 101. We're going to be talking about a specific type of leadership, which is leadership in a crisis situation, which is something that you're no stranger to. And it's timely because you had the opportunity to work this this past year with people and with teams in Fort McMurray in the, in the wildfire crisis that gripped Alberta earlier in the spring of 2016. So depending on when when someone might be listening to this episode, maybe you could provide, uh, just provide us with a little bit of information, maybe about kind of set the stage for what happened in Fort McMurray, what took place up there, and and how you got involved in
1: that episode. Thanks, Chris. Certainly um, to lay the groundwork a little bit, just to orientate people to the map, as we used to say, Fort McMurray and the greater community is in the top, right hand corner of Alberta and really it almost touches the arctic circle it's that far north uh, it's uh, if people can in their mind can picture you know edmonton which is the capital and one of the major urban centers in alberta it's it's about 4 or 5 hours drive on a single road quite isolated in the boreal forest north and east of edmonton so, and it's a major urban center, certainly in um, Canadian standards, but, uh, but certainly in the north. It's a center of about eighty to 90,000 people, depending on the day you count them. There's about 80,000, 75,000, or 80,000 people that live in the community, the city itself. And then, then there's a number of camps that are working in the oil sands, extracting bitumen from the oil sands and, and feeding it into the greater, larger petrochemical network and system throughout North America. It's um, very modern, Uh, to think that it's, uh, uh, you know, bush country is true, but it's a modern city basically skidded north and dropped off in the middle of the forest. And in the last number of years in Canada and across the north, it's been extraordinarily dry. The boreal forest has been compared as a tinderbox several times and there's been a number of big fires across northern Canada in the last few years. This summer, earlier this spring, the beginning of May, end of April, beginning of May, there was a, they think it might have been a man-made or man-caused fire, usually because of an ATV or some sort of recreational vehicle in the bush, sparked up a fire, and it just got away from everybody. And within a number of time days, it was actually threatening this city of eighty or 90,000 people and in a period, it's quite remarkable that in uh, in a very short period of time, I think the fire was closing in on the on the city on a Monday, if I remember right, first Monday in May, and they started evacuating small parts of the community and some of these uh, bush camps, or oil camps that were out in the in the forest. And uh, on Monday, it got completely away from them. Tuesday, they evacuated an entire city of eighty thousand. 90,000 people with like only a, one road out, basically. And for some unknown miraculous reason, there was, not a, there was only two people that were killed in a, in a car accident. And the drama that you saw on the video, certainly in this day and age with lots of people with cell phones, smartphones, the video you saw were you know families that were just evacuating through walls of fire, smoke, ember falling all around them. You can hear the panic in people's voices, the thought that evacuation was, was successful with a small, small and very unfortunate loss, uh, two loss of life, was remarkable. I was deployed up there later that week. Uh, the, for, the fires were brought under control. Well, they never were actually brought under control until just recently, which would be about eight or nine weeks later, but they actually moved away from the town. That week, and I was deployed up there to work with the uh, Emergency Operations Center Recovery Planning Center on the Friday, so about four days after the fire. Walking into that town, I was—I've likened it to some of the zombie movies that we've seen, maybe because that it was a, a, a big city of eighty thousand people, and there wasn't there was only a thousand people, twelve hundred people in the whole place. Most of them firefighters, and the rest people like myself. And Chris, it was re- quite remarkable that you know the there'd be kids' toys in the left on the driveway in the in the uh, front lawn. So I'm sure if you would have went into towns, there would have been tables set and food left out. It was just an evacuated, empty town. The fire destroyed two thousand buildings, uh, which was about ten percent of the housing stock in the town. Two or three neighborhoods were completely destroyed, and then sporadic destruction throughout. It was quite a thing to see. I've been in the business a long time and seen a lot of things between the military and Red Cross, and it's probably one of the most dramatic things I'd ever seen.
0: For a lot of the engineers who are listening to this, especially if you're in the civil engineering industry, you know, a lot of the work that we do in public service with public infrastructure construction, and you know, I've been calling the electrical engineers with the electrical systems and so on and so forth, you know, Steve, I've not had the opportunity to, to witness something of of that level. But I have seen and I've been involved with the witnessing of the uh, systematic degradation of infrastructure systems. This one not caused by fire, but this one caused by extreme cold in a southwestern region where that wasn't prepared for it. And just for everyone who's listening, there's a very, although we may think that our infrastructure systems are very redundant and robust, they're truly not it can be a very quick systematic degradation of systems when something like this happens and we're going to we're going to be talking about leadership specifically in a crisis situation but for all of us who are listening all of us that are involved in this that are engineers something to, to take away and to keep in your mind especially if you have not been involved or have not ever witnessed any kind of a, a significant natural or man-made disaster as an engineer it's pretty amazing to consider how sensitive the systems that we have around and we take for granted every day can quickly degrade and pretty much go to zero in a very quick period of time. So as you're listening to the conversations we be taking on today, which we we'll to be talking about leadership, something to keep in mind, I'll just kind of, you know, kind of footstop this one is to think about what this means in realm in the realm and with regards to you as an engineer and what you may be able to bring to the table in your engineering capacity or your engineer capacity as we go through this. So, Steve, we talked in our previous conversations about leadership, but in this conversation today, we're talking about leadership in a crisis situation. So in your mind, what characteristics mark crisis leadership as being different from day-to-day leadership, the kind of the leadership someone might expect to see in the
1: office dealing with a project? So, I would suggest that a lot of the basic leadership principles and how you how a person behaves as a leader are the same, except for this one one thing it's It's like on steroids, and it's magnified multiple, you know exponentially from how you do it. and it, of all of the times that you need to demonstrate that you are the leader. You can get away with it when it's a coffee maker that needs to be replaced and it can sit for a bit or something else or, you know, another process within your office or your project environment that you can just let slide. But when people's lives, the responders or the citizens or the people on your team lives depend upon it and the survival, potential survival of your organization depend on it, you better have your ducks in a row and be exercising nothing but the highest level of leadership. Because people in those times need it the most. Most people don't like to be led too much when it's just calm and relaxed. But when things are all falling apart around them and turning to crap around them, be it a fire or an economic meltdown or whatever it might be, that's when they need you as a leader to be the best you can be.
0: So what kind of characteristics do you, would you say in general a person is going to need to bring you to the table to be that effective leader in this crisis situation? What kind, of, what kind of characteristics are they looking to try to hone to be that, that person who can take control when everything's falling down around everybody else, they can step up and drive forward with, with people actually behind them?
1: So there's a number of points that I, I, I'll get to, but I think the number one thing is that you need someone steady and calm. It's not the time to be rolling out the type A personality leadership traits, yelling, or even presenting an image of somebody who is overexcited, or I'll say panic, uh, maybe it's a bit strong word, this is the wrong image that, as you as a leader need to demonstrate. There's been some recent studies, I just heard on the TED Talks just recently about a, a an example where they actually um, put mice into a CAT scan, and one of the things they found that if they induced fear in one of the mice, the other mice in the I don't know what you call a collective of mice, Mises, they actually took on fear even though they weren't exposed to the actual threat, they picked it up from that one mouse. And they've done studies that they believe that people are much the same, that if someone is panicking, it reacts the same as if everybody else has been exposed to that same threat. So you as a leader need, first off, to stay calm and walk slowly and be methodical, and cautious. Now, of course, if there's life at risk, there's certain things that have to happen in an urgent manner. But for the rest of the time, you should be actually be the, the calm in a rough sea, the island, the safe harbor for people to come to and take your calmness and your, your steady thinking and your practical application of leadership back with them as they go back out into their, to do their jobs. That's the number one thing I would say is be calm, even in relatively relaxed times. I remember I was work, had a young lady work for me, and she was brilliant and lovely. And one of the things that she would often do would actually be just short of a run. She would walk so fast through the office and around what was going on. And finally, I had to take her aside and say, slow down, don't run, don't walk fast, because it panics the troops. <laughs> they need to see us to be the most calm that we can possibly be in every setting so that they have confidence that everything's under control.
0: I've seen that in my own experiences in situations that, you know, very easily could have led, you know, quite frankly, I guess it, most people would say in a, in a sane world would lead any rational person into a, into a world of stress and, and fear. But when you approach it with this calm mindset, uh, you know, the studies that, that you referenced I've read the same thing, or correct, that we as humans very easily pick up on these on the sympathetic nervous systems of other humans, and it's very easily transferred from one to the other. And, uh, in fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call out two books right now because we like to link these up in the show notes. But the two books that are going to provide you with a, a bunch of different references on this, one of them is actually maybe not the right title to go with with the conversation today, but it's, it's called the, the Happiness Track. By Emma Seppala, and we'll uh, we'll link that one up. And that one, that one has a lot of different references, to studies, and actually a lot of different references to what you can do to put yourself into a calm mindset. And uh, we'll link that one up. It's a great book. It's called The Happiness Track. And another one is from uh, Harold Kushner, which is Conquering Fear. And that one as well has a lot of really good references uh, to to dig into when it comes to the scientific studies that have been done with how we as humans interact with other people. So you're absolutely right. I mean, Steve, I've, I've seen that myself. When someone's, someone gets stressed out in a very stressful situation, it's very easy to spook the herd, if you will, and get everybody in, into a panic. So we've kind of covered on some of the characteristics that aren't useful. I know that you do a lot of work with individuals who are trying to perhaps adjust some of their personality traits and some of their ways of how they approach leadership you did mention that someone who's kind of a type A personality might not be the right personal way of approaching leadership in a crisis situation. So if, if someone is approached knows that, hey, I'm a pretty type A, I'm, I'm pretty much out the front driving it, pushing people where they need to go, that's the kind of personality, the kind of leadership style that I have. What would be your maybe suggestions on how someone might want to Check their ego at the door and adjust the way that they do their delivery in a crisis situation.
1: If you are the top of the organization, the the leader, the the, you know CEO or most senior person in an organization, I would recommend that you find somebody that counteracts your where your. Behavior and conduct and your personality may not be useful. So in the military, we would always, you know, you'd always counteract a commanding officer with a regimental or sergeant major, so that you have a bit of a yin and a yang there. It's the wrong time to be doing that in the middle of the crisis, though. So you need to be able to build that team of supports around you. I would use the example like if you're the kind of a person that's that's good at throwing rocks in water and watch the ripples take off around the pond. You need somebody there that can calm the water out for you either before or after. But if that's your personality straight I, I would challenge people to think about this is that if that's the only trait or ma- management leadership style you have, then you're probably not a very good leader in the first place because you're you're not using all of the tools at your disposal. So That would be the first comment I would make to somebody like that. If they can't adjust their leadership styles to different people, different situations, then then they have a different problem.
0: That's a good way of looking at it. I know that you and I have talked about this before, and it's come up in some of our previous podcasts around the, around the topic of situational leadership that, uh, you know, to be effective leaders have got to be a lot more flexible than just having a default position that they always go to. And for all of everyone that's listening You know, this gets into the into the realm of situational leadership. Again, like I mentioned, we've got podcasts on this. There's some blog posts that are out there. We'll link those up in the show notes. But you know, situational leadership it isn't being a chameleon, changing your character. It's more more of adjusting to the situation from an empathetic standpoint. And to that that effect, Steve, what are what are your thoughts on? the role of empathy in leadership when we're talking about a crisis situation, do you think it's, is it more or less important in that kind of a situation?
1: I would say that it's more important, but I don't think that the, emp- so you need to have empathy in what's going on in your people's lives. There's, there's a couple good reasons for it. One is I think that I believe that if people don't feel that you have, have empathy in their situation. They're, they're not going to follow you and do the things you need them to do when when it's in a crisis. And the other side is that you're able, as a leader, you're able to apply different tools to, you can see how people are reacting to a situation and the, the context that they're in and be able to adjust your, your tools, being empathetic. But especially in a crisis, uh, I would say you can't let empathy overrule your decision-making process, that you need to be able to make the best decisions regardless of what their downstream impact might be that to keep a to keep health and life safety of your employees and the people that you're responsible for in good order and also to maintain that the viability of your organization that is your ultimate goal at the end of, uh, of a crisis is that your organization is alive it quite likely it will be altered because of the experience, but in a situation that they can, at at a minimum, is able to function, and at best, is to, is to take advantage of the situation and thrive.
0: For everyone that's listening to this, you may or may not have ever been through a crisis situation before, and and this can be again anything from a na- a natural disaster that strikes your area where no one was expecting it was going to happen to the situation of Fort McMurray with, with the fires, to some of the situations that have happened recently with shootings and other issues like that that are going on. I mean, these are situations where you go to, you go to the office or you're going to the project site expecting that it's, it's going to be business as usual, and literally everything that you expect or you realize or understand in your world... Is completely turned over in potentially a, a matter of moments, or it could be a matter of, of hours. And through my experiences uh, over a couple decades of work, have have lived through this through 9/11. Um, I've lived through it um, in situations that happened uh, when I was a, uh, a squadron commander with a with an engineering unit a couple different times. I mean, it's these are situations that you can only think about but you, you really can't fill in the blanks because they're just gonna come out of nowhere. And so we were just talking about being the role of empathy. What I would add to that is that as a, if you're in a leadership position or a leadership role, whether it's with a project team or you have a company, you're, you're listening to this and you run, a, you run a firm, that empathy needs to be there right now when you're not in a crisis situation so that you have those connections built with people, you know what's going on with their lives and in their lives. So that, that that connection is there, that people know that you're there that you're there for their support. because when you move into a crisis situation, although type A may not be the right role or the right, the right type of personality to take on, it needs to be one of strength. And as Steve, as you just mentioned, you know everyone needs to be able to look to you and realize that this person has my best interest in mind and the best interest of all of us in mind in order to get that followership. And that's only going to come through, you know, unlike the movies where everybody, you know, the strongest alpha seems to be the one that takes the role. It's only going to come through that connection that there's actually, this person's actually <laughs> has my best interest in mind. So this is something that's got to be cultivated beforehand. And so it's something you've got to be thinking about. And have you seen that in your, in your experiences as well? Absolutely,
1: I would I would go a little further than empathy. Is that all of the things you do in your day to day work um, should everything should be building up a bank of trust between you and the people that you work with and work for you. So there there's a line I can't remember the it was a Canadian Army commander from World War Two and I think his name General Simmons if I recall properly and one of his quotes that always resonated with me was like always explain what and why what you're doing and why you're doing it so that the time, when the time comes that you don't have the time to be able to explain, they will trust you. They will trust your decisions. So if you're a closed book leader in, when things are calm and relaxed, you are actually not building that level of trust with your people that when there is a crisis that they know that you're going to make. Is, they might not like the decisions you're, going to, you're making, but they know that they're the best decisions that are being made and they can live with that and uh, i don't think that it would be it's helpful for people in a crisis situation to be overthinking a lot of this stuff it's like you know you have to make the decision and if people trust you they will trust that you made a good decision and again it's easy to be a monday morning quarterback and pick it apart but in that when proverbial crap is hitting the fan people need to have confidence that you're going to make as good a decision as you can and they'll be okay with that so it's build that trust bank
0: That's a great way to put it. I I know just from from my own experience in the last significant crisis situation I was in, I occupied that position where I I had the trust of my team, my unit. And so when we entered into that situation, I didn't have to spend a lot of time explaining why I was asking for things. I just asked asked for what needed to happen and it was done. And that is a As a leader, that's an exceptional position to be in when the proverbial stuff hits the fan because you you truly don't have time to explain to everyone, this is why I need you to do A, B, and C. You just need to be able to look at somebody and go, I need you to do A, I need you to do B, and you people need to go do C. And A, B, and C may not be particularly enjoyable. They may even be dangerous. But you want to have, Steve, as you mentioned, you want to have that trust bank built up so that when people – hear you say, I need you to do these things that may not be nice, may not be fun, and may be dangerous, that they look at you and they go, got it, I'm on it. And they go and they do it because they know that you have, you know, that you're, you're making the decision for the best reasons.
1: I would agree. And one of the ways I think, or a couple of the ways that you can build that trust prior to, but especially during the incident, is that as a leader, you have to own this problem. It might not be your doing, or you might may well not have caused it. Like the mayor and the premier, which would be the equivalent of a, a state governor here in Alberta, didn't start that fire, and the fire chief didn't start that fire, but they owned it. They said, this is our problem. and This is what we're going to deal with. that." If you start casting blame and, and deflecting, the issues around then you lose trust and you lose people lose confidence in you quite quickly i always remember a boss in red cross during the beginning of the tsunami and i told people right up front i said just so you everyone's perfectly clear that this is not going to get any easier than what it is today and in fact it's going to get harder because it's going to go long, it'll likely go on for months and months and i and a boss of mine said "Oh, that you shouldn't have said that because it was a negative message about what the situation was i said well that's up to you to you know i told her i said that's your opinion i said to me it's an honest opinion people need to understand that the work is going to go on for a lot longer than they've been used to in this and other disaster responses and it's going to be harder than they've ever been used to so that they can start adjusting their um reality and adjusting their expectations. And if it all goes swimmingly well, and it all wraps up in a, in a week or two, and we've all had a nice, uh, easy piece of business here, then it's, it's easier for them to understand and go home than dragging it out. So own the problem, be honest with it, and tell people what they can expect. It doesn't mean you scare them, but tell them what they're, manage their expectations so they know what's going on.
0: Yeah, that's great advice. And, and I think it may and, you know, it may play into this next question that I'm going to ask you. And I'm going to ask you this any, anyway because I think there's probably some more that you can expound on. Again, Anthony and I have talked about this in previous podcasts. We've written about it in a lot of our blog posts. You and I even discussed some of this during the previous episode that we did together. And that that goes into what most people listening here understand on the definite of what the definition of leadership is. And again, we've always unpacked leadership from the from the concept. Or the perspective of someone who's in their office or a project team leading people on a day-to-day basis where everything is you know, everything's smooth sailing and you know, the sun is out. And we all know that leadership's about, it's about setting a vision. It's about delegating and guiding others towards a common goal, those types of issues. So how do you do that when you know, you're in a situation that wasn't planned for, it wasn't anticipated, I mean there was no script for it, no one expected it. And the only goal that you can perceive as you look at the situation is just that it goes away. You're now thrust into this leadership position. How do you set a vision and delegate and guide others towards that common goal?
1: So I would take issue with the premise. You might not have – nobody expected – a town of 90,000, 80,000, 90,000 people to be evacuated or nobody expected the incident, uh, you know, I know it might be a bit of time going by, but the Dallas shooting here just recently to happen. But you should expect that an incident is going to happen. The only question in your mind should be the the length and severity of what and the impact of what it's going to be on your business. If you're wandering through life with a Pollyannic view that the world is full of sunshine, unicorns, and roses, and you're not thinking that there could be a crisis that impacts your company, your organization, or your people, or yourself, then you've got a different problem, and it's called an activity. So first thing is know that something could happen. And it's an overused term, but plan for the worst and hope for the best. So in your advanced thinking, well, before anything happens, is that you should be having thoughts and conversations with your team about if something happens, this is how we're going to do it. This is where we'll relocate. Um, If I sucked off the planet tonight by an alien ship taking me home, Bob, you're in charge. And this is, you have the authority to do what you need to do. So it's upfront planning and upfront thinking that will help. And then when the event actually happens, you should be quite quick to be able to say, this is our goal. This is our objective of how we're going to handle this, that we are going to maintain X services throughout, or we won't maintained any services. We'll just be in complete survival mode. But at the end of this, um, within a few days of the end of the incident, we're going to have our office up and running and we're going to be back providing services to our clients and customers. So I think it's actually quite simple to be able to do a quick objective statement, mission statement for this crisis that you're dealing with and, and make sure everybody understands that this is what we're going to try to achieve. We are not going to try to maintain 100% business continuity throughout, but we will do this, this, and this, and we will make sure if people are going to be paid throughout the crisis, that their paychecks are going to be uninterrupted, Let make sure that they know that. If they can't be maintained, make sure they know that. And by stating that crisis mission statement up front and early, then people can start seeing where they're going to slot in So, for example, the planning cell that I was uh, working with in Fort McMurray, our mission was that we would have a plan to facilitate the reoccupation of the community by a specific date. And so we all worked. In our minds, we all knew that that we likely knew that that wasn't going to happen because it was just the scope of this was so large. But we picked a, we decided on our own mission statement, and we worked towards that, and then allowed people to set priorities and set expectations and set their work.
0: I'm going to share some thoughts uh, when we get into the take action today segment around this, but. But you're absolutely right. As a leader, you can necessarily anticipate everything that might possibly happen. But as but as engineers, we all, especially when we're dealing with projects, operate in a world of risk. I mean, there's always something that could go wrong with the project. So that the concept of planning for risk in the projects that we execute isn't completely foreign. We understand that the fact that that's there. So this is taking risk assessment to a different level, perhaps looking at it through a different set of lenses, I'll cover a little bit of that when we get into the Take Action Today segment with some of my thoughts on that. But, Steve, where, where can our listeners learn more about some of the great work that you're doing?
1: At any time, they're welcome to join me and at my website at Stephen Armstrong, S-T-E-V-E-N, Armstrong, all one word, C-A. My blog posts are there, and uh, my access to information about my speaking, consulting, and coaching is all on that website. And I'm also offering the listeners of the podcast, Chris, uh, a PDF copy of my book, and it can be found at stephenarmstrong.ca slash tech,
0: Awesome. Steve, thanks a lot for that. And not just because of that, but I'm pretty certain that you potentially could become the the tri-peat to this episode. It's always a always a pleasure to have you on and have conversations and talk around leadership. So we may have you back as number three, as the first person to go three times on the tech podcast, just because it's a great great conversation every time every time you come on. So Steve's going to stay with us for the take action today segment, and we're going to both share some actionable advice that you can use on this topic of crisis leadership. So stand by, we'll be back in just a moment. All right, now it's time for our Take Action Today segment of the show. And Steve and I are going to both provide you with a couple pieces of actionable tasks, some advice, if you will, that you can undertake to be an effective leader when a crisis erupts. But before we do this, I want to offer you a word from today's sponsor, PPI. So engineers often ask me what exam prep materials review courses they should use when preparing for the FEP or S exam. Hands down, I recommend PPI. Now, I personally use the PPI's materials to pass my exams many moons ago, and I recently had a chance to demo their new review courses. It's why I feel confident that recommending PPI for those of you planning to take the next step in your career, PPI is offering a special 20% discount to listeners of this podcast. Just use promo code COACH at ppitopass.com. Again, that's PPI, the number two, pass.com. Use promo code COACH for a 20% discount. Now, we've been talking about crisis leadership. And right towards the end of the interview session, in the main segment, we were talking about spending some time doing some risk assessments. So I'm just going to kind of stomp that and say that you need to. one of the things that you need to be doing is, is investing time, thinking about what might go wrong. And so, again, if you're into project management, you're doing project management on, on different engineering work, there should have been or there should have or there should be an effort that you undertake to do the development of a risk matrix where you're identifying things that might go wrong with the project. Well, take that same concept and apply it to your business operations, your team operations, and think through what are the potential things that might go wrong and how you're going to respond for this. And so my experiences as a commander was thinking about what might happen if I had a a drunk driving incident with one of the people that worked for me, or perhaps a, a casualty from a contingency operation, or what might happen if a significant utility system went down. You as a project engineer might be thinking about what happens if one of your key project team members doesn't show up for some reason. They call in sick during a very important component of, let's say, commissioning a facility project you're working on, or a deliverer or a vendor doesn't deliver material at a very vital component or a very you know, very important part of your project. What are you going to do at that point in time? So these are potential risks. You can think through what the severity of that might be, what the probability of that event might be, and you can think about potentially how you might respond to that situation. And it may not be a situation that you ever have to actually respond to, but just the process of going through thinking about what might go wrong And how you would respond to that can help prepare you mentally for that day, that situation that might actually occur that could be classified as a crisis situation. So Steve, now over to you. So let's say you've got a couple minutes in an elevator with with one of our listeners. What's a piece of advice that you can provide them about crisis leadership?
1: I would say that the most important thing to remember when you're dealing with a crisis is that it's impossible for the human mind to be strategic and operational at the same time. And if you're going to be the leader, a person in charge of leading through a crisis, it's very important that you elevate yourself to a strategic level and keep looking out over the horizon as far as you can. And at the same time, seeing what's happening operationally immediately in front of you and for the next couple of days. And then in point a top-notch operational manager person to lead the day-to-day response to the crisis. Because you'll miss things, you'll miss both threats and opportunities that this crisis may open up for you in front of you if you're focused too closely in front of you in the day-to-day tactics. So that would be my number one piece of advice. From lots of lessons learned is you can't be operational and strategic at the same time. And if you're in charge, your job is to be strategic.
0: That's brilliant. And Steve, thanks again for coming on the show and sharing this with all of us. And I hope that everyone listening today enjoyed today's episode. We'd love to hear your feedback, comments, questions. Just go over to engineeringcareercoach.com and either search for this episode and leave a question in the comments section or visit the Ask Us tab on the main page of the website. Anthony and I monitor all the comments. We're going to respond if you leave us one. And until next time, please continue to engineer your own success.